The story of Issa's Comet Chaser continues. You're listening to Western Worlds. Hello and welcome back for another conversation right here on Western Worlds. My name is John Kissy and I'm coming to you this week as every week from the Centre for Planetary Science and Exploration at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. ESA's Comet Chaser Rosetta has provided the world's scientific community with a great deal of new and unexpected data. With mission operations now over, we return to STEC in the Netherlands to talk to Rosetta project scientist Matt Taylor about the mission and what remains for the Rosetta team. Let's go to the interview. I'm here with Matt Taylor, who's the project scientist for the Rosetta mission. So last time we talked, we got into a, a bit of detail about Matt's uh, previous experience and how he ended up on Rosetta and what the next stage for Rosetta is. So now that that period has passed, we're into a new phase. So I'm just going to uh, hand off to Matt and uh, he's going to let us know exactly what progress has been made. Okay, yeah. The last time we spoke, we were planning the end of Rosetta and now we've gone through the end of Rosetta. So basically, um, I think it was the end of last year when we spoke. Uh, so we were there, we'd just come to the nominal end of, well, the, we'd come to the end of the nominal mission and we were going into an extended period of the mission. And we were planning what we were going to do to end the mission. And that turned into us uh, deorbiting the spacecraft onto the surface of the comet. And we did that on the 30th of September, uh, 2016. It was quite a hectic period of weeks and months leading up to that. The reason we did that was, um, there were quite a few reasons actually. The, the spacecraft was moving away from the sun, as the comet was as well, because we were trading the comet. And uh, we were getting into a situation where the spacecraft didn't have enough power to run all of its instruments. Some of the instruments were getting older. We would have had to put the spacecraft into hibernation. So adding a lot of things together, we had decided way before that actually to, to put the spacecraft, to crash the spacecraft into the comet basically. We've gone from a fully massively um, intense operational period to not having a spacecraft anymore. And it's been, I think a number of us are still in a transition period. Um, certain, well, both uh, from a career or what, well, not career, from a work point of view and also a psychological point of view because you do, there's a massive hole in your life when you suddenly realise that you're not getting 300 emails a day that you have to respond to. I, I know it sounds weird, I relish the fact that a majority of my emails at the moment are actually spam. <laughs> and I really do need to filter them a bit better but I'm like oh I can delete this and not even read it because it's spam um, so we, yeah we've made that transition but that's not to say that everything's finished the, the massive activity at the moment is to make sure that we continue the science that we're doing uh, to make sure that the data and you're very familiar with this with mm. your past life at ESA is, is archived well and so that's really the focus now is to do post operations to make sure all the instruments deliver their data and we're also trying to uh, squeeze a little bit more out of the data so we're working with the team to say well, what, what other things would you do what other data that, or data products that maybe you hadn't thought about before you could envisage that we might want to think about pr um, providing to the archive in the next couple of years and so that's that they're the ongoing discussion but I think the overlying the main activity at the moment is science 
when we had the end of mission event uh, in Germany, in Darmstadt, in ESOC, the day before we crashed the spacecraft, we had a kind of showcase session that I'd organised of uh, highlighting all the science that we'd done so far. Mm. And a couple of the scientists alluded to the fact, and this also came up in subsequent uh, big science meetings. There was a big science meeting, the Division of Planetary Science and European uh, Planetary Science Congress. It was held in Pasadena in October. And there, teams were saying, here you go, I've got whatever it was, 60,000 spectra from this instrument, but this is only like 5% of our data set. We've only been able to analyse that much data so far, and already we've got loads of results. So the key thing being, you're talking about a very small fraction of the data that we've taken at the comet in the last two and a half years has been analysed, and now is the time to go, go ahead and really dig into this data. When the spacecraft crashed on the 30th of September, um, Eberhard Grun, who is one of the in interdisciplinary scientists on Rosetta, he's one of the kind of, you best way to describe it, he's one of the fathers of Rosetta. He was there at the beginning. He was one of the ones that kind of came up with the idea of Rosetta around the time of Giotto. And he came up to me and he was beaming. There were a number of people that were, you know, kind of uh, emotional. I was very emotional, actually. I surprised myself. Um, but... He came up and he was really happy. He was saying, "Look, Matt, this is this you. This is great. We've we've finished this bit of the mission. You have to consider this is like the namesake of Rosetta. This is uh, like in 1799, I think it was, when they got the Rosetta Stone. They 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 had the information, but then they had to decrypt that information. It took them 30 years or something, depending on who you, what you read." And he said, that's where we are. We're at the stage that we've just got the Rosetta Stone. So there's plenty of work to do. And although the media interest has dropped significantly, of course, because there's not a, a spacecraft flying around the comet, actually the most important work is now being done in terms of what, what the legacy of the mission is, which is the science. And already I was doing a report yesterday. We already have the most referee publications of the mission period so far which is you know somewhat uh, to be expected but we're really seeing that there's a massive increase in that activity mm. so that's kind of in a nutshell what we've done uh, and what we will continue to do for at least three years anyway because uh, that's how much kind of we've put aside in terms of time and money on the ESA side to, to continue with Rosetta. Is the data publicly accessible? Is, is there going to be like a public archive that people can go to and get the data and work on if they're in the field? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. It's it's being pipelined in in the normal process within ESA and also NASA as well. So it's going into the Planetary Science Archive down in ESAC. Uh, it's also being mirrored uh, to the PDS, the the NASA equivalent. So we have a, a kind of um, parallel and. Um, how can I put it, a coordinated effort on the on the NASA side to make sure the data is there as well. So we go via the via ESAC and, and, and the ESA archive and then NASA are taking it, uh, copying the data over or mirroring it. Okay. Uh, but that's it. So that's where the, uh, the, the public access comes from. And nominally between 6 and 12 months, we're getting data between 6 and 12 months after it was taken. So that's where you look. If you look on the data, on the archive today, you'll see, actually, you'll see all the navigation camera data for the complete mission. So that's that was our camera. That was the ESA camera that was used for navigation around the comet. All of that data is now available to use up until the evening of the 29th of September, which is the last time we use the navigation camera. So all of that data is available. There's a lot of other data. Uh, there's there's differences uh, in terms of how recent the data is, depending on what instrument there is. There were some, there's always issues, again, as you know, with archiving, 
uh, it's getting formats right and some of the pipeline processes don't work and then when you review the data it's not just about delivering the data and you know just slinging it in a on the shelf it has to be reviewed and we have to check that the data is correct and that it is scientifically viable and it goes through these processes that add time to the time from when the me measurement was made to when it is there available on the archive. So aside from the fact that there is a proprietary data period on the data on Rosetta, um, there's also the, the kind of delays in terms of you know, just the, the, the logistics of getting the data in the archive. But normally we're, we're doing pretty well. We, we should be soon um, having data up till the end of the nominal mission, which, as I said, which was at the end of 2015, and then we'll start archiving the, the escort phase. But uh, that's where you go and get your data from the, yeah. the planetary archive. Is the same team that's work, that was working on the mission also performing these data archiving activities? It's a subset of the, of the science ground segment. So the people that are working on the science operations are being used or they transfer and use their skills uh, in the archiving activity. Compared to if you look at the ESOC side, so the mission operations, there is now one person left on that from the whole team that was there. You went from 30th of September, there was a flight control team, there were the people in charge of all the instruments and, and commanding the spacecraft. They went from an entire team to the 1st of October, one person, the science operator, uh, the spacecraft operations man, uh, manager, Sylvain Lodio, he's still working on Rosetta, but everyone else is diffused into other missions. You know, we've got, they immediately go to other missions and work on those because they haven't got a spacecraft to fly anymore. They haven't got anything to operate and they get moved to other, whereas, and well, a similar thing happens on the science ground segment. People have moved to ExoMars, to the JUICE mission, um, but there are a few people that re remain working solely on Rosetta for the archive. Then there are other people that are working 50% on Rosetta and 50% on Plato, for example, uh, getting ready for the development of that mission. Uh, I'm on Rosetta 100% of the time still to, to, to encourage scientific utility and, and activity. So that's really the, the intensity is reduced significantly and now I am trying to encourage um, science output and, and, uh, and work with the teams on that. So it's what I it's what I was doing anyway, but because of the intensity of the operational mission, that wasn't a priority. The priority is to make sure we were getting the commands done, make sure that everyone was reasonably happy with what we were doing operationally. So now everyone's looking back, and there's a lot of wow going on. Actually, we had a meeting in Toulouse in November where some of the data and some of the results are really will will and have already had a massive impact in general astronomy. What exactly does it mean to encourage science utility? Um, well, it's, you know, in principle, I could, uh, I could just sit back and uh, just let the teams get on with it. Uh, and most of them will do that. But it's things like uh, organising special issues in, in, in journals, organising meetings. One of the main activities as well that I'll have is, is trying to push the archive a little bit. So the archive's, you know centred down in Spain and they the teams interact with them there but as project scientist I'm interested in the science legacy of the mission so I want to make sure that that archive is as best as can be as it can be given the constraints and the money that we have so I'll be working uh, with the teams on that as well to try and you know just to encourage that's what it comes down to because I I haven't got money to give anyone it's more um, uh, encouragement that's that's what I try and do uh, which you know sounds like I'm not doing anything but it seems to take an awful amount of my time even though yeah the operations are gone but it's something that you do with the, with the big team that we have on Rosetta there are a number of instruments that are spread all over the place just to try and work that will 
we do, we're in the transition phase. You're in that what they call the rundown phase of the mission, where you're going from operations to, to post-operations, and everyone's trying to find their feet at the moment. But ultimately, yeah, there'll be a more relaxed period compared to operations, where you know, yeah, okay, I'll be organising say the two meetings a year to make to, to drive the archiving effort. But into in between those, we'll have uh, telecons, etc. We're setting up special issues, as I say. Not well. We've got one set up now based on the meeting we had in Toulouse. And I might actually start doing some science as well, um, but that won't be on Rosetta, it'll be on Cluster. It'll just be on Cluster. Yeah, just because I'll let people, the, the people that know what they're doing, uh, that are really into the instruments, you know, there's enough people working on Rosetta, and I, I, I know the data set on Cluster a bit better. Mm. But uh, yeah, so it'll be more relaxed, put it that way. Um, having worked on Cluster before, and now you're working on Rosetta, how does this stage compare between them? Is it more or less the same? Um, well, well, I mean, at the moment, uh, well, Cluster's still running, so it's not in post operations. But I would say the nominal operations of Cluster um, are less intense than the nominal operations that we had on Rosetta, mainly because I don't think you can use the term nominal operations on Rosetta. There was always something going on. I, mean, I think I might described it last time with Rosetta. At the beginning of 2015, we were using a particular way of, uh, of operating around the, uh, around the comet. We had a, a particular uh, set of plans, but because we had an issue with dust, uh, so the, the, the navigation system on the, uh, on the spacecraft was confused when we got close to the comet, we had to change everything, the way that we were operating around, uh, around the comet. So but basically what I'm getting at is that we're constantly evolving what we were doing, and, and I wouldn't say we were playing catch-up, but you, there was no... There was no time where you were like, okay, now we can just have no normality. There was always something coming up, especially because at that time as well, the comet activity was increasing and coming towards summer of 2015. Then it dropped down and we were always pushing to get closer and there was always pressure to get closer than we could. Uh, on top of that, the lander as well, the fact that uh, we hadn't at that time been able to accurately identify where the lander was. And in fact, yeah, in, in the interim period since I last spoke to you, that was one of the other things that we managed to do because we got close enough to the comet and we really did need to get close. There were images that we had actually from December in, 15, uh, in 14 of from 30 kilometers where people were saying, I think that's where the lander is, that's where Philae is. But it was this kind of little glinting thing yeah. that you couldn't un unambiguously say that's the, that's the lander. So we had to get really close. And that was one of the, again, that was a challenge for the end of mission. <coughs> The end of mission period was set to about six weeks, from mid-August up to the end of September. And in that phase, we were fixed in a particular kind of orbit, which is an elliptical orbit that started off at eight kilometers from the uh, from the eight kilometers by thirteen kilometers. So that was kind of the ellipsis, uh, ellipsis, uh, ellipsicity, ellipsicity, whatever it is. <laughs> but and, and we fixed at three day period. Uh, so that orbit had to be at three days to allow us to plan accurately when we were going to take observations and when we were going to do certain things and when certain uh, cutoffs for operations were going to be carried out and, and maneuvers. So what you did, and we wanted to get closer, so we were stepping that, that periapsis closer and closer in, uh, in distance, and you then stretch and change the orbit to retain an orbit period of three days. When we got within about two kilometers of the surface in early September, 
we were getting significant perturbations from gravity. Mm. And this, you know, you look at the, the comet's this weird shape, and if you're overflowing different parts at uh, you know, although it's three days, it was pseudo phasing with the orbital, uh, the rotation period of the comet, which is 12 hours, 20 minutes, and went down uh, as change actually to 12 hours, near enough. That was uh, perturbing the, the, the period of the comet, uh, sorry, the period of the spacecraft's orbit, and changing it by up to 17 hours in one direction wow. and 10 hours in another. And what we had to do, that we didn't let that ride, we actually corrected for it with a maneuver around pericenter as well. So that was making things very challenging when we were getting, as I say, within about two kilometers from the surface. We were all, and, and we were trying to point accurately with such a massive error in where we were. So I wouldn't say the pointing was bad. It's more, if you say at 12 o'clock you're gonna point at this part of the comet, but at 12 o'clock it turns out actually you're there, your pointing's not gonna, you're gonna yeah. be pointing at a diff, you know, you're out of time, you're, yeah, you're, you're, out, you're on the wrong timeline. So that was happening, and when we were trying to get a specific point on in the camera field of view, which was the lander, we were not having great luck. And you can see that when I give presentations, I show these two frames. We had one frame where literally you've got a square and you look just to the left off, off of the square, that's where the lander was, and that was supposed to be in the center of this frame. So yeah. it gives you an indication that we, we were kind of losing it because of these effects. And then subsequently, you know, the next orbit from this one frame, we got the, the image. And even that was just on the, that was just to the edge of the image that we got. And we got, we got that on the Saturday, and then I got a phone call from Larry at like, 11.30, Larry O'Rourke, who was leading the lander search uh, activity from, from uh, the ESAC in Spain. Yeah, it was 11.30 in the evening on Sunday, and he went, have you seen your email? I was like, no, I haven't looked at it. And he went, look at it. And I was like, yep, that's the lander. You, it was unambiguous, you know, you can even see instruments on the on the thing. So that was, that was nice to have that before the end of the mission. And uh, what's interesting is that <clears throat> the lander doesn't appear to have moved. So the last time we, we'd contacted it was in June and we, we, we had a rough, again, we never really got fully in contact with it since November 14. But based on what we had seen in November and what we understood in November 14, it appears that it hasn't moved much based mm -hmm. on our understanding of solar illumination, etc. And it doesn't look like it's had much dust put on it either, which is useful to give us an indication, or further, let, let's say, it further confirms our understanding of the location that we're in with the lander, that we think it's very prime, it's very unprocessed, compared to where we'd originally targeted, which is very dust-laden, where we ended up is very, um, very different location, mm. we couldn't have targeted it, and so it really shows you, you know, for us, we, 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 we like that, we think it's good scientifically that we're in this very uh, unique, lo well, not unique, it's a, it's a let, let me use the term again, unprocessed. We don't mm. think it's uh, as, or at least as dust-laden and covered as some of the other regions. So we get an idea maybe of uh, more of the, the more common structure or the common makeup of the comet. Did you manage to get science return from the lander and is there still science return coming from the lander? Well, we the only science we got back were the basically 70, uh, 60 odd yeah, 60 odd hours in November 14. Yeah. After that, the only contact we had was uh, more at a spacecraft level. Mm. Uh, there was no science being done. But now, we one of the important things for finding the lander, there was more science being done on that only you know, 60 hours of data, but now we've found the location 
they the lander team are already going back and looking at their data and revising it and, and one of the big experiments was the concert experiment which was a radio transmitter on both the orbiter and the lander <coughs> which did a tomography experiment to probe the internal makeup of the comet. They made estimations of what they thought the porosity and the internal makeup is and now they'll have a much better um, measurement of that because they know accurately where the lander was so you yeah. really can nail this down. So they'll look at that, uh, just the general, um, what's nice when you put a, put together the composite of the, lo the, or the orbiter's image of the lander with the images that we got from the lander itself, you can make this these cross comparisons of the, the local terrain and everything, which are, which is really nice. And as I say, the fact that environmentally it doesn't look like there's much dust on the lander, so that's telling you more about how what the local uh, effects are like around the lander in that location. And with their there yeah, it, the, the, the as I say, now is that they can go back and look at specifically now they know where they are. They can they can. Basically, they can go back to that data set and do more. Well, in addition, we're all, we're also looking at cross-comparing with the orbiter as well. There's just general things going on because people have got more time to mull over the data. For example, there was um, more recently in September this year, there, there looked like there was dust impact on the on the orbiter spacecraft, and some teams are looking at comparing those measurements that were made because some dust went into the detectors on the spacecraft. Oh, okay. To look at comparing that with uh, measurements that were made by the lander, because effectively the, a, a lot of the experiment, a lot of the measurements were made in flight when it was bouncing, of a material that was thrown off the surface when it right. impacted, and so they'll do comparisons with saying, well, you had dust in your uh, experiment, so we'll do the same from the orbiter and cross compare to see what the spectra look like. And so there's in some in very interesting and very important comparisons there being made, along with. From a plasma perspective, there are still studies being done on the, the the magnetic field data and comparing how both spacecraft are observing particular phenomena in the magnetic field, So, the, which is actually the, the outer atmosphere of the sun, so looking at how waves were being generated, So, that, and that's with two spacecraft. Uh, so there's, there's a bunch of stuff being done. I really wanted to uh, discuss with you a little bit about the actual lead-up to the crashing of the spacecraft now. This kind of an operation is something that uh, I certainly know that ESA has done before. Things like Smart One yeah, and yeah. other spacecraft. So this is a kind of operation that is kind of familiar here. But why not just leave it there and, and wait for it to come back and see if it comes back? What, what's the benefit of... Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Because that's what we were going through actually quite a long... It was probably in 14, early 15. That's when we had to really work out what we were going to do as part of the extended mission. Um, how were you going to deal with the spacecraft when it got to a situation where it would have to go into hibernation again? There were a number of, you know, some of the, some of the instruments were, were getting beyond their lifetime. Uh, we were running out of fuel. We still had, I've forgotten how many kilos of fuel left. Um, I would say one of the main drivers for ending the mission then was we didn't know whether we'd be able to go through hibernation again. In principle, yeah, you, we could have got into hibernation again. But for me, we would have spent an inordinate, I consider, amount of time studying going into hibernation again. So the mission uh, people would have gone through simulating and deriving a mechanism to put the spacecraft in hibernation again because it was a different hibernation to the one we went to first time. Maybe you can explain that. We uh, originally went into hibernation in 2011 because we were going so far away from the sun that we couldn't power all the onboard instruments and onboard payload. So we powered it down to just have a, a, a clock going basically and uh, a few other uh, systems. So we we're getting enough energy to run those. 
that was on that orbit. Now we got into the same orbit as the comet in 2015, uh, 2014. So we would have gone in hibernation along the path of the comet, which was going further away from the sun. It would have been a much longer hibernation by I think up to maybe a year, another 12 months. So it would have been in hibernation for nearly three years. For me, let me put it this way, the analogy, and I, I use this analogy not a lot, you can agree with it or not, for me it's equivalent to a 60s rock band who come back and tour, and some of them are still okay, and but some of them are rubbish, they really should quit. So for me, it was that's what it was like, we could have put it in hibernation, it could have come back again in six years time. But it wouldn't. It might not have come out of hibernation, and we would have invested all that time in hibernating it instead of focusing on operations during this time period. There are th- things that we were doing that was exploratory. We'd never done. We'd never flown around a comet. Still, we were still learning how to fly around a comet in fifteen. We changed the way that we were doing the operations. We had to make a decision on what we were going to do, and for me, it was to try and drive uh, and to get as close as possible to the comet, to just focus on that, to focus on doing operations near the comet and not focus on, well, let's do some operations, but know that we have to go into hibernation and make sure that we put the spacecraft far enough away from the comet, though it doesn't impact it, and blah, 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 in the next six years, and, and make the spacecraft safe, and then after all that time, it may not come back, or it may come back on, and we haven't got enough um, fuel or some of the instruments aren't working. And then we've got to run in a certain situation with the fuel. And at the time we were making the discussions and decisions, when we came out of hibernation, some of the reaction wheels weren't working as nicely as you'd want them to. And there we'd already had a system uh, put in place that was ready for the case that a number of the reaction wheels failed, which basically you need to offload angular momentum, etc. And they're the things that turn and tilt the spacecraft. If they had failed, we would have had to change again the way that we operate the spacecraft. We'd already put that in, and that plan was ready to go, but it had taken a long time, I mean over a year, to put in place, mm-hmm. which would have meant point the spacecraft at the comet for 12 hours, not doing anything else, then turn the, co- the spacecraft round to point at the Earth to download data. That was the limit of the science operations, which would have been highly restrictive for what we really need to do scientifically. For me, it was trying to get as much done as possible when you know everything's working, mm-hmm. rather than dragging things out with something you didn't know for sure that was going to work. And um, I think we made the, the right choice because we've ended in a, at a high. Were there any particular science benefits to Oh, to this crashing? final? Okay. Yeah, well, like, I mean, you know, you get return data you wouldn't have got in any other way. Well... I alluded to the fact that we were having trouble when we got to about two kilometres from the surface. That means that it would have been very challenging to have... Well, we stopped getting closer at that point. Mm-hmm. We were originally going to go below two, but Flight Dynamics said, look, look, no way, because it's so weird what we're experiencing. Over some time, maybe, over six months, if we'd done that, we might have got closer. But given the time scales that we had, we would not have been able to get any closer. So that plunge got us below two kilometers, got us images and data taken very close to the comet. Uh, We were making measurements with plasma and also dust and gas right the way down to the surface. So we've got very near comet observations. Some of them are null, some of them actually didn't detect anything, but that tells you something as well that you feed into a, a model. But I think it really goes down to the unique image set that we've got from the Osiris camera so where we were scanning that particular region which has these what we call pits which are 
linked to activity, but also give you a kind of peek into the maybe the subsurface or the general morphology, the makeup of the comet. There's all these fractures and boulders everywhere, or rocks or blocks, I should say. So we got that data that you'd never get. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to get in the timescales that we had by just spiralling down. We had to do that plunge that way. Yeah, I mean, it's it, that, that data set is unique. Um, we probed a, a region that was very important to, to get an idea about. And there is there are some interesting things that I, 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 I await the results to come out as to what the profile of the gas looked like. You know, the fact that velocity seemed to be very strange when we got close to the surface might tell you something about how the activity comes off of the surface. Right, it wasn't very active, we didn't get much dust, but <coughs> there's still gas coming off, there's still sublimation. And that profile is going to be very interesting to get more information from. Well, thanks very much, Matt, and I'll speak to you again very soon. Thank cool. you. You're listening to Western Worlds. Let's go to the discussion. So that was an interesting interview, wasn't it, Pasharti? What did you think of uh, what Matt had to say about um, um, the end of the mission and, and what they've got left to do on Rosetta now? I think it's pretty interesting, um, especially like one of the things he mentioned that, you know, this is the real science starts now yeah, exactly. <laughs> because uh, I mean when the mission is going on you have things that you want to get data for before things run out or like you don't have a chance you basically gather a lot of data and you do have like preliminary results in the start but like you go back and dig through it more and try to make sense of it more so like a lot of the data for the other missions too like we still use them so this is going to last for a long time and we're still going to learn a lot more um, than what we did during the mission um, so I think it's interesting I mean why not you have more data to study the object that you know it took so long to get there and actually you know um, orbit around it and take data for it I thought it was very interesting um, when he was uh, uh, describing uh, some of the high points of the mission, mm-hmm. some of the things that uh, they um, that they'd done that were uh, just beyond their expectations, and also the reasoning behind, you know, the decisions, that, you know, of crashing into the the meet, the, 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 the the comet to get. Uh, to get that final burst of data, yeah, and uh, I, I felt it was um, very interesting, kind of hearing what the kind of reasoning is, you know, the, the, that goes on behind the scenes when people have to make that kind of decision. Yeah, I know. Like a lot of lot for a lot of these people, um, working with the mission is has been like a long, like they have been with the mission for a long time, so. For them to make a decision of something like crashing is, is hard because they're yeah. going to lose like it's like their baby right yeah. so um but like their mission is to get science done and use whatever you have on the spacecraft or you know with the spacecraft to actually do what science is needed to be done and how long it took them to get there and actually do whatever they were able to do and they knew that it would be hard to keep up with all the other, you know, circumstances that were around. It's better to just crash and get more data than actually um, take keep the risk that it won't turn back on. Yeah, exactly. So just you know, this the idea of just keeping it going is great, but then how long? Like, how much more can you still get? Is it beneficial to just dive through into the comet and actually see? 
what it's made up of than actually just roaming around it and you know trying to get more data of what you already know about it, exactly, right? Exactly. Um, and I think the same kind of thing is now happening with Cassini. Like it has been running for a while now, and now they've decided to just, I guess, let it dive into um, into the Saturn's atmosphere. But that's one of the things. How long can you keep doing what you're doing? Yeah, you get, keep getting more and more data, but you are limited with what kind of resources you have on board. It's not that you can just send something new. I cannot have a new camera on board. Like, you know, this it, it is what it was made whenever the spacecraft was made. So mm-hmm. you got to do with what you have. And um, yeah, and I actually, I, I loved their, whoever did like the PR, like the outreach you know, materials that they had, the cute video with like, (laughs) yeah, the cartoon, um, that made, you know, people so interested in what was happening. I mean, um, people hear about spacecrafts being sent to like Mars and, you know, moon and Mercury and like all these planets. And I think at a point people are like, yeah, okay, you're sending more, right? Like there is no, like they want, you want to, create a new environment for them to learn about things and Mm -hmm. I think that their videos that they put out um, in the press conferences that they did kind of got people more engaged in a way even kids to just learn about what a comet is and why are we going there and what how is it different from earth or Mm -hmm. any other object that you find in the solar system kind of Mm -hmm. um, the idea behind that was Awesome. And I thought that Matt's uh, the actual work in, in the in the outreach area has been quite good as well. Even he's just kind of being himself, like his Twitter presence is yeah is quite um, yeah the quite media person yeah, is and, uh, he's done a really good job of like you know getting the message out there and also being available and, yeah uh, and also being I don't want to say a personality but uh, but. Being the face of the yeah, the, the, the mis- of mission, and, yeah, and, and you know, showing people that here he is, he's on this this space mission, really important mission, you know, brand new science, but he's also really a normal guy who goes to like rock concerts, yeah, and has a collection of like, you know, you know, rock um, band T-shirts, and he he goes to work in his shorts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like this, you know, it's the normal fella. Yeah. And that, I think, has been, has been really nice to see, like, people recognise that. Yeah, we are, like, people, when, you know, when kids, you tell them, well, mostly, when you tell kids, you know, what our scientists look like, they have a lab coat and a, glasses. and a glasses with them, and not, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not all the scientists are um, lab coat and glasses. Yeah, exactly. It, it's yeah. glasses, but it's different. <laughs> of glasses to like computer stuff right so um yeah pretty cool that's our show for this week western worlds is a production of the center for planetary science and exploration this episode was produced by partially patel and john kissy and featured an interview by co-host john kissy our roundtable discussion featured co-hosts john kissy and partially patel our editors were john kissy and partially patel and i'm john kissy our theme music is Helio Sheath by Sean Kim. You can continue the conversation online and listen to past episodes or learn more about Western Worlds by visiting our website at cpsx.uwo.ca/westernworlds. You can also visit our pages on Twitter and Facebook.
behalf of everyone here at Western World, I'd like to thank you for joining us here tonight. I hope you can join us again next time, right here on Western Worlds. Thank you.